Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, for everybody listening in the rest of the world, We've just enjoyed President's Day weekend here in the US, and I hope that you all had a great long weekend. It's good to be back in LA, where again, the weather is magnificent, and tomorrow I'm off to Louisiana, Alabama, and Tennessee, giving some business presentations and conducting workshops, and it's wet down there, but I'm still really looking forward to it nevertheless. Now, if you're listening for the very first time, this is a radio program where we tell it exactly the way it is, bringing entrepreneurs and small business leaders the latest information every single week on what is happening in business throughout the world. Now, we're proud of the fact that we're the number one radio station globally, number one radio program globally, for entrepreneurs, and we are we target all entrepreneurs, whether you work in a dry cleaning store or whether you are a techie, whether you have been in business 40 years or whether you've been in business five minutes. If you're an entrepreneur, we love you, baby. We're on your team. As I announced last week, the Voice America Radio Network and I have reached agreement to continue on air for another 52 weeks. We commenced the show in 2011 on a 13-week trial, and we're still here, and we've been going from strength to strength, and that, thanks, is all due to you guys that listen every week. Now, in the next 12 months, if you're in an industry where you do get out and meet people, you'll meet between 800 and a thousand new people, new people, people you've never seen before. And the first question you'll get asked by over 700 of them, after you've told them your name, is what do you do? Now, the way you respond to that question and the tone of your reply will determine the direction, scope, the connection you make, and the possibility of getting an ongoing relationship with this new contact. So this is where you need a very professional elevator pitch to quote a very, very overused but very famous line, you never get a second chance to make a great first impression. So you've got to grab that chance with both hands. And I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times. It is important to have a great elevator pitch. There's been thousands of books and articles written about it. How you can deliver a 30-second to one-minute killer, brief, concise, interesting summary to define yourself, your profession, your product, your service, your organization, and give them your value proposition, all within a minute. Now, chances are, though, you're like most people who don't really give it much thought. They certainly haven't rehearsed it. They certainly haven't written it and put it together. 
However, it really is unbelievably important. And so today, what I want you to do is put down your, whatever you've got in your hand, go and find yourself a pen and a piece of paper, or set the recorder on your phone or wherever, and take some notes, because we are going to go through creating an elevator pitch step by step. Now, the first thing to remember is, and this sounds really dopey, but there are some bloody stupid people in this world, first thing to remember is you don't need to be in an elevator to give an elevator pitch. <laughs> the reason it's called an elevator pitch is because you've got to imagine that you get in an elevator and the person that you're about to talk to is getting off on the sixth floor. So you've got to get across in those six floors what you're about and get them interested enough to want to talk to you more. So you don't get that much time to make that first impression. Okay, you got your pen? Got your paper? You ready? Here we go. A couple of things to remember. Firstly, you must only use words that the everyday person can easily understand. No jargon. None of that complicated crap that sounds great in your profession but nobody else gets. Secondly, you've got to relate to today's marketplace. So don't give an example about something that happened 25 years ago because that just shows that you're out of date. So it's got to be something that's current and sounds current. And then after you've delivered your short, concise, fascinating elevator pitch, you should have said something that elicits some sort of a reaction from the recipient. Maybe it's a question. Maybe they laugh. Huh. Well, I'm not so sure that that's good. Maybe it's just a comment. But it can't just be a simple nod, yeah, thanks very much, I can't wait to get out of here, look. All that means is that you've totally lost them. Once you've finished your elevator pitch, a good gauge of how successful it's been is whether or not the recipient asks you for your business card. If they don't, the relationship's dead. If only for the reason that they don't know how to get in touch with you and as soon as they walk out into the street, they've kind of forgotten even that they met you. So how do we create a great elevator pitch? Okay, one way is to follow these suggestions. Firstly, tell a personal and emotional story about a client or a business and a problem that they faced that your product or service overcame. Now, this has got to be a really short story because you've only got 15 seconds to tell it. So cut out all the flowery crap, get down to the nuts and bolts and give it to them. Now you need to tell them how your product or service solved their problem. That's another 15 seconds. But the next part is the most important. You've got to explain why your company is superior to your competitors. This is where you need a great consumer purchasing benefit. And if you've listened to the show in the past, over the past three years, you will know that what a consumer purchasing benefit is and um, how to form one. But you need a great CPB and you need to be able to articulate your valuable value proposition in another 15 seconds. 
Ask them for a business card and suggest that you meet, perhaps over a cup of coffee, so that you can talk about how you might be able to help them. At this point, it is critical that you ask them what they do and get a discussion going and give them the opportunity to strike up a conversation with you. And, you know, in six floors, you don't get time to say much. And they don't get time to say much, so you really need to have this honed. The keys to a powerful elevator pitch are really quite simple. You need to determine what it is that's really unique about what you do. What's unique? What do you do that's different? Write it down. Make it as short and concise as possible, and then say it out loud over and over and over again. Make it interesting. Make it exciting. Modulate your voice. Practice it with your family and friends. Talk to your cat. It doesn't matter, but you've got to get that message right. So practice, practice, practice. Now, you can deliver an elevator pitch anywhere. The main reason it's effective is that you get your message across very quickly and in an interesting and enjoyable manner without boring boring the other person to death by rambling on and on aimlessly. If you ramble, no one wants to meet with you because if you're boring as hell in a minute or two, the other person quickly realises just how boring you're going to be if they give you 30 minutes. An elevator pitch will work if you're meeting someone in their office for the first time or if you get introduced to somebody at lunch or someone you sit next to on an aeroplane or at a bus stop, maybe at a supermarket or a doctor's office. There is no end to the number of places where you can initiate a meaningful dialogue with somebody who is, after all, a potential customer. More importantly, the more people that you meet, the better your pitch gets. Each time you say it, you just get that little bit sharper, drop out a bit, Put in a bit, but it gets to be more effective and the more work that you will end up attracting. Now, it's worth taking the time to get it right, but like everything worthwhile, you've really got to work at it. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I hear a lot of rumours and I actually see quite a few actual smartwatches and there's lots of rumours swirling around about the new Apple smartwatch. The latest is that it will have a function that will monitor your health and even predict a potential heart heart attack. Now, that's great. I think that's much more benefit than some of the absolutely useless applications that are on some of these watches. And if that's where Apple's going, and nobody seems to really know, then I think it's brilliant and much more exciting and appealing than those tricky gimmicks on some other watches. I just hope that they can make a smartwatch that actually looks attractive. You know, I was with an advertising guy actually at a family lunch last week and uh, he had a smartwatch and it looked like he was carrying a television set in his wrist. It was the most boring, ugly looking thing I've ever seen. And I don't know about you, but I love watches, and I've got some really nice watches, and uh, I don't want to wear a television set on my wrist. 
speaking of television sets, I was at Best Buy the other day because my television died. I don't know how long. Remember, I got one of those big, bulky, old television sets, you know, the ones that are about three foot deep. And I bought it 30 years ago and it lasted, I don't know, for 20 years. These new screens, the one that died, I think I only had it for like three or four years. What's going on? I know it's a disposable society, but that's bloody ridiculous. Anyway, I was in Best Buy the other day and I was looking for a new television set and every second person I saw was on their smartphone. And I'll bet you they were comparison shopping. Now, it wasn't that long ago that um, we thought, "Uh uh-oh, this practice of showrooming is going to kill brick-and-mortar retailers. But now it seems that retailers have discovered reverse showrooming, where consumers go online and research products they go to before they go to the, the um, brick-and-mortar store to buy. Now, this isn't anything new. It was ever since the internet began, people have gone online to comparison price. But what is different is that retailers have woken up they can use this to their advantage and capture in-store sales. We've reached a point where reverse showrooming is actually more important and more popular than showrooming. That is, more people look up on the web before they go to the stores and go to a store and then comparison shop when they're there. And... um, Reverse showrooming, 69% of people do it, whereas showrooming now, only 46% of people do it. And the thing that surprised me the most was that millennials prefer to reverse showroom rather than research in in store and then buy online. I don't know, there's something about, first of all, I reckon service in stores has picked up enormously. And there are so many other things. There's something about picking up the whatever it is, walking out the door, sticking it in your car, bring it home, plugging it in, and bingo, rather than waiting around for um, Amazon to deliver it. But retailers, by integrating offline and digital, and then using tactical tactics like having staff that actually know what they're talking about, being able to pick up in store, you know, picking up online orders in store, having Wi-Fi in in stores, and then discounts for smartphone users. And the retailers can beat online competitors, maybe not on price, but only 13% of the population buy based solely on price. So 87% are looking for that little bit extra, which a real live retailer can give you. I've got to say, the other day in Best Buy, every single person that worked in the place, and there's a heap of them, were all friendly and said, hi, and can we help you, and da-da-da, and it's a beautiful day today, and I mean, it was, it was like being with a bunch of relatives. I loved it. I thought it was great. And I think that's because um, retailers are now beginning to realise that they're more an all-round consumer resource than just a seller of goods, which is the way I think they looked at themselves before. 
Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, and I hope you are, and I hope you're telling all your friends, you may remember that about 12 months ago, I said that the marriage made in heaven, the absolute marriage made in heaven, would be between Apple, which has got to be the world's most innovative company, and the extraordinary Elon Musk, creator of PayPal, CEO of Tesla, SpaceX, um, Solar City. Guy's a bloody genius, to say the least. Apple certainly need the extraordinary creativity and foresight of Musk, and there's no telling what Musk could do if he had the grunt and the resources of Apple behind him. Now, Apple and CEO Tim Cook spent most of last year fighting off concerns by analysts and investors that the company had lost its innovative edge. We've got a new announcement today. We're going to make phones in green and yellow. I mean, shit, what sort of a big announcement's that? So while they fiddled around the edges and added a few better technologies in some of their, their products... They haven't had a new product or a new category since 2010 when the iPad came out. They're now as boring as batshit. They're just another big company with a lot of money in the bank. Musk, on the other hand, I mean, he just keeps throwing them out there. His um, Hyperloop, the transit system that could get people from San Francisco to Los Angeles in about 20 minutes, it's indicative of the way the guy thinks. So without a dramatic move like joining force with Musk, Apple's future is just going to be about how much money can they make on iTunes and how many more things can they screw around with with the iPhone. They would get an iconic partner. They would become the darlings of technology all over again to drive Apple forward. And if Apple went into Tesla, that would certainly challenge Google with its driverless cars and that would be another great battle. So I doubt if it's ever going to happen, but um, it would be cool if it did. As I said 12 months ago, that would be a marriage made in heaven. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and the whole reason we are here is to help you, the entrepreneur, to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, or you've got somebody in particular that you'd like me to interview, or you have a topic that you want me to talk about, don't hesitate to email me directly at bob at bobpritchard.com, and we will answer it on air, or we'll email you directly. We're the number one radio show in the world for entrepreneurs, so no matter where you're listening on the planet now, thank you. I hope you're enjoying it. After the break, I'll be speaking to a great guy, Thomas White. He's the CEO of the C-Suite Network, which is a mentoring, support, and educational organization dedicated to members of the C-Suite. You know, they're people like CEOs and CFOs and CAOs and COOs, everybody with a C in front of their um, title. Thomas is a serial entrepreneur with an extraordinary amount of experience and a great guy. And the C-Suite Network is one hell of a great idea. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. And I'll be back with Thomas in just a moment. 
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we, we talk to people who have achieved great success and who are making a real difference in the world of business. We often talk on this program about the need for mentors and the need to have a source available where you can receive advice. You know, there's plenty of challenges that face every business, no matter whether it's large or small, and we need to get advice so that we don't make the mistakes that others before us have made. I mean, there's plenty of room to make our own mistakes. Now, there seems to be a lot of mentors available for entrepreneurs in early stage businesses, but what about when you make it to the C-suite. Now, for those of you who may not know, the C-suite refers to people who have a C in their title. No, not that C. People like CEOs and COOs and CFOs and those sort of Cs. So where do they go for advice? My guest today has addressed this issue by founding the C-suite network which is an organization reserved for C-suite members. And it focuses on enhancing each member's profitability um, through a unique networking and educational experience which connects executives to their peers. Sounds like a great idea. Thomas White, CEO of the network, which provides online learning experience, customized content, and conferences. Jeffrey Hazlett, who we've had on the show, um, incidentally, is also a great speaker if you're looking for a speaker. And uh, absolutely brilliant guy, and he's co-founder of the C-Suite Network, and of course you can catch him on Bloomberg TV. Jeffrey describes the C-Suite as the go-to place for insights, advice, education, and services for all leaders in the C-Suite. So it's critical in all business, no matter who you are and where you are, to have an advisory board with people that have been there and done that and a diverse range of people so you get different advice from different perspectives. And they'll provide you with strategic guidance, they'll inspire action, and uh, you know, they keep you motivated when often you might find that um, 
you might feel that you're sort of pushing it uphill. Thomas, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It's good to speak with you. Yeah, Bob, it's good to speak with you as well. Now, I note that you've been the CEO of Profoundly Simple for 12 years, so obviously you're pretty smart as well, as Jeffrey. And um, one question that I think crosses the mind of every entrepreneur at one stage or another is, if you've got five businesses that open in a city, one of them will flourish and after a couple of years we'll have three or four um, stores or businesses, branches, and the other four will have gone broke, yet they're selling the same product, they're in the same market. Why is it that some succeed and some fail? No, I think there's, there's a number of reasons, Bob. I, one of those is how the executive, the entrepreneur, deals with challenges. You know, some people, when they run up against a challenge, the first thing you're going to do is, oh, my gosh, this is hard. Yeah. That's, a real <laughs> entrepreneur says, oh, my gosh, this is something I didn't expect. A great opportunity to learn. A great opportunity for me to do something I haven't done before. Let me figure it out. So that's number one. It's, it's sort of the attitude when you run into challenges. Okay. I think the second thing is, the second thing is really simple, and we all know we should be doing this, but we certainly don't. It's listening to your customer. Yep. Customers will tell us what we need to know. They'll tell us how we can satisfy them. But so few entrepreneurs actually listen to the customer. They think they know better. They just go out and make the offers because they think they are going to be accepted. And the customer will tell you what they like and don't like, and they'll help you be a great success if you listen to them. Yeah, I always say that the only person who can really put you out of business is the customer, and all they have to do is stop <laughs> buying from you. Right. Nobody else can put you out of business. Well, government can probably shut you down, but nobody else can put you out of business. It's only the customer. They have all the power, and particularly today. They have more power than they've ever had before. So tell me about Profoundly Simple. What's that about? Well, Profoundly Simple came out of my own interest in as a CEO. I've started 10 different companies, starting when I was 22 years old. Right. And I found that the thing I loved the most, was getting the people that work for me to be their best. Yep. Having them be the brightest, having them be the, be, be the most alive, having them be the most passionate and be most intuitive, but most committed to get something done. Right. And that part of it, you don't get a whole lot of time to do as a CEO because you've got to talk to your shareholders and your investors and your bankers and your customers and your staff. So sure. I started Profoundly Simple as a business that helps leaders get the most out of themselves and their whole team. Right. So... How did, was that a, an automatic extension into the C-suite? Is there a connection there, or is C-suite something sort of totally different? No, actually, it was. Actually, Profoundly Simple came out of, uh, uh, it's a follow-on business to a business I acquired in the 90s that was called SportsMind, and SportsMind's focus was leadership development. Right. And we had a, a physical orientation, an emotional orientation, and a mental one to bring the wholeness of the person to addressing it. And we worked with the largest corporations in the world, to entrepreneurial startups, to nonprofits, to religious organizations, helping them bring out the best of their leaders. Right. It, it, uh, are people natural-born leaders? I mean, you look at some people and, and that walk out in front of a crowd or walk out in front of staff or walk out in front of shareholders and are just naturally um, exciting and, and leaders. I remember seeing Steve Jobs a few years ago and at the end of his presentation, if he had said, come on, we're all going to go to the Grand Canyon and jump off, we all would have trotted along like lemmings and jumped off the cliff. Some people just have that 
whatever it is, X factor, I suppose, use an overworked word. So what percentage of being a great leader and a great, because um, to be a great CEO, you need to be a great leader, don't you? Whether you're leading your team or whether you're leading shareholders or whether you're leading investors or <laughs> whoever you're leading, um, you need to be a great leader. So how much of that is born and how much of that can be taught to somebody? Well, you know, I think it's, I like to use the analogy like a piano player, you know. Right. Everyone could be taught to be extremely proficient playing the piano. Yep. So we all have the ability to learn and do that. And everybody could be taught to be extremely proficient leader. Yeah. Now, there are virtuosos. Yes. A virtuoso is somebody who has in them those extra special gifts that help them be an extraordinary leader. Everyone's not going to be an extraordinary leader like everyone's not going to be an extraordinary pianist. Yeah. But we all can be competent. We can all be proficient if we realize that it's about learning. You know, one of the biggest challenges for all CEOs is they need, they need to remember, and you said this earlier, that they need to have a network around them of people that are going to give them advice that's untainted so that they can continue to see what they can't see and learn. Those that know that succeed. Those that don't are going to be surprised and sometimes very badly. Yeah, I saw some. I saw some figures come out of a study at um, I think it was Stanford that said that um, only eleven percent of CEOs do any learning whatsoever after they've achieved their tertiary education. They just don't bother. Yeah, and isn't that odd? You know, if you think, think about professional sports. You know, the, the top performers in sp- professional sports perform at their best because they have a coach. Now, right. in the leadership world, we call that a mentor or a, a coach, you know, something like that. But, but the top athletes need that because they can't see themselves yes. clearly. And a CEO can't see himself clearly either. And if he doesn't take advantage of that, he's going to be mediocre. And why would you want to be mediocre when you could be great? Yeah, I agree. Now, well... Isn't the difference, though, that the average CEO, if you're in a business that's, um, you know, you pass the startup stage and now you're, now you're in a, a growth phase, you are working 80, 90 hours a week. And I guess the thought of having to go off to a, a CEO school, if you like, or whatever, it, you know, you sit there and think, Jesus, the wife's yelling at me. I haven't seen her for a week. I haven't seen the kids since last Tuesday. Uh, if there's one thing that can go, it's the ongoing learning? Well, if the CEOs that decide that's the, the path for themselves, that's the answer, are going to realize it's a false economy. And when I'm going away, I take, take three or four days and I go off and learn something new, or I just get some fresh perspective by talking to my peers like we do in the, C, in the C-suite network, sure. I'm going to have an easier time with my job. So those obstacles that I face I don't have to trudge through them. I can actually call somebody I know, or I can already have some insight into that. So it doesn't take me 20 hours to figure it out. It might take me an hour. Yeah. So it's, I think it's just false economy. We get caught up in, on the treadmill, and we think that there's no way out. But, of course, then we're right, unless we step off of it and decide to operate a different way. Yeah, I think one of the big problems is trying to sort out important from um, you know, things that are important to do rather than things that are just there that should be done. Um, you know, I, I must admit, yeah, I know, suffer... It, 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 we all do that, but you know what? We all have the same number of hours of the day. Yep. So it's just a matter of how we, choose to, how we choose to spend them. Yeah, that's true. So why is thought leadership vital to the survival of a business? Well, that's a good question. You know, um, our customers are looking to us to be uh, an organization, wherever our company is, looking to us to be 
in the forefront of our field. Continue to innovate. You know, customers sure. will be satisfied with some level of quality of services today, but tomorrow that raises, and those features about that service may change as well. So if I'm a thought leader, I'm, my customer is going to think and, and feel confident that I'm able to change the business, change the service, change the, the, what they can count on for me as time goes on. That they worry about companies that are in the middle or the back of the pack, they have that less confidence shows up in less revenue and, of course, less profits. Yeah. Um, very difficult, though, for a CEO today, isn't it? Because, you know, who would have thought that, a technology, I guess a software company really like Apple would knock off the music industry or that an Amazon, which is, you know, just another iMall, not quite, but you know what I mean, would knock off the book business or that, um, you know, banks are probably going to be knocked off by a Google. How difficult is it for CEOs to sort of see where that blind side's coming from? Well, you know, it's, it's it's a good question. I, I think this is something again going back to what we talked about a little earlier. Um, if I'm in a, a, a create create around me anyway, a network of people that are going to give me feedback and advice, they're going to help me see those things that I can't see. They're going to also have perspectives about the world that are going to be different than mine. And it's those different perspectives are going to help me avoid the pitfalls, have me realize it's time to make a change, and you know also. You know, CEOs is a lonely job. You know, it who do is. I talk to? I can't talk to I can't talk to my boards usually because I don't want them to know I don't understand this. Sure. I can't talk to my subordinates, and I don't have a peer network. And one of the reasons we created this C-suite network is for CEOs and other C-suite leaders to have a network where they can let their hair down, have a private confidential conversation, and come back rejuvenated and with a lot more insight on how they should act. Right. That's it. So, do you think CEOs in the main are aware of the potential um, Amazon or Apple sitting in the wings just waiting to knock them off? Do you think the average CEO is anywhere near looking at that? I saw some some studies by... I'm a big fan of the Singularity University, and I saw some stuff that they churned out, which is absolutely bloody scary. I mean, if you were a CEO, you'd, you know, you'd look for another job. Um, so how, how important is it to get involved or an organization like yours to get involved with somebody like, you know, Futurists or, or a Singularity University to try and help your members understand the change that's happening? Because I don't think most CEOs do. But, you know, that's right. So my experience, I've been, so I've been a CEO a lot and I've also, you know, been other roles in companies. I don't think we're ever truly surprised by change. I think we are hopefully it won't affect us. Yeah. So we ignore it until it's almost too late. And so the fact that Amazon is going to be the store place for everything or Walmart came into communities and there's no more local jewelry stores and bookstores, that was no surprise. Yeah, true. Communities just thought that they could bypass it. So then if I am a CEO, I can see the trends. Even technologies that are coming, Apple created the iPhone, but nothing was innovative relative to the core technology. What was innovative True. was the way they put it together. Yeah, that's right. So anybody who knows what's going on in universities today can see where the future is going to happen. It's just a matter of now realizing that I need to make changes to adapt to that. And if I'm not willing to do that, I'm going to have some real problems. Okay. So the C-suite, how does somebody 
what what position does somebody um, what position does somebody need? Obviously, they need a C in their title. But what um, what position does somebody need to have to be a member of the C suite? And how do they go about it? And then well, what can they expect? Uh, so, so the you know C suite here really is a, it's almost a metaphor. I mean, certainly a lot of people have like you said, CEO or COO or chief marketing officer or whatever. Yeah. But in some companies, they don't use that nomenclature. Sure. So maybe it's the vice president of marketing and the vice president of sales, but it's really somebody... And chief superstar and all that sort of stuff these days. Yeah. Somebody's got a responsibility for a particular function in the business, and they're at the top leadership level of the company. And we are looking at companies with at least $10 million in revenue, okay. up to $3 billion is our, is our sort of sweet spot of our market. And the reason we've chosen that sizing is that Everybody from that ten million up generally is about growth. Right. Now, if you're, you're if you're starting up, you're about survival. Yes. But as you start moving, you're, you've got to grow. So whether you're if you're a twenty billion, twenty million rather, or you're a billion, differences scale, but the problems and challenges are almost identical. Right. So we're able to bring common content, common observations to this very large network of people that are, for the most part, underserved, particularly cross functionally, and help. You know, so that what do they need to do? Well. C-suite-network.com, go to the website, there's a thing, find out more about us, send us, fill out the form, and we'll send you some information to see if you, this is the right thing for you or not. So, Crazy. I, so I join, now what can, I, what can I expect from you guys? What, what, um... Well, I can tell you some things that are public, and I can't tell you some other things, okay. so I'll just tell sure. you what I can tell you. You know, right now, we have two conferences that we're offering this year, one um, in Dallas, the main four through six, uh, another one in... Um, uh, Marina Del Rey at the Ritz Carlton in November. Nice. Those conferences are gathering of 500 C-suite leaders. Right. We're not charging them any registration fee. Incredible programs. Uh, C-suite leaders talking about their challenges, their successes, their best practices, and the way the future is going. We have some motivational speakers there as well. We're bringing technology so these C-suite leaders can be able to connect in a way they've never been able to connect before, and then we'll offer them something that's pretty dramatic which is an online network that I'm not going to talk about yet, but they'll be able to, okay. to witness that when they go to the conference. Okay. We've also created a whole bunch of content that's C-suite leader specific. We have a, a C-suite uh, blog that's right. written by C-suite leaders, just for C-suite leaders. Um, we're going to have C-suite radio, which is just content of conversations with C-suite leaders. And Jeffrey, as you know, has yep. Bloomberg Television, but he's also starting to filming this week C-suite television interviews with the C-suite leaders that won't necessarily be broadcast on Bloomberg. So lots of content that's going to help people do a better job, okay. a way to, to meet together at the conferences, and then there'll be an online network that we'll announce in May that will help them continue that relationship and give them access to a whole set of, of services and products and support for being successful. So I'm a CEO and something comes out of left field. Um, how do I then access you guys or your peers or... Uh, whoever I need to access to get me some feedback on how to address this issue that's just come across my desk. Well, you know, the, the, the C-Suite Network is really great for that. So when we when we launch the online network in May, you'll be able to pose a question. Hey, I've got this kind of problem. It'll be posed to the membership. And everybody who, who's got something to offer will be able to communicate directly back to you and offer you their, their insights and feedback. We'll also have sponsored events inside the network that will be not really like webinars, they're like, almost like hangouts in the Google right. nomenclature where we'll have a particular topic 
and we're at, like at two o'clock on Friday. We'll talk about how to how to do business in China in a particular market. And people okay. who are interested in that can show up, and we'll have a, a, a speaker, and they'll be able to stimulate the conversation around how you can do something that maybe you're thinking about doing or something you're having troubles with. Right. So what's what's the biggest fear facing? CEOs, what do what they sort of wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat about? I think the biggest fear CEOs have is are they going to have a job tomorrow morning? Yeah. Well. You know, it is the uncertain, and that's because the uncertainty is so great today. You know, yeah. I started out in business in, in, the, in, the, in the 70s, and how things work was pretty predictable. Yeah, if you sure. follow a certain formula, you, you could probably be pretty successful. And the 90s, that started changing pretty dramatically. And now, the rules of the game aren't clear. It requires a tremendous amount of alertness. It requires great dexterity to change when something shows up that you don't expect. It really, you're on your toes every minute of every day. I think that creates people a, a little fear. And probably not bad to have that kind of fear, but at the same time, you need to be able to step past that fear so you don't act from it. Yeah, it's a bit a bit destabilizing. I guess you need to have excellent, you know, one of the keys is to have excellent relationships with both your board and your shareholders because if either one of them turn, it's a bit like being an NFL coach, isn't it? You can be gone in 30 seconds. <laughs> it is true, you know, and the thing about the board and uh, is that, you know, one of the misnomers we have is that I can't tell bad news to my board. The truth is, as long as I tell the bad news early, I usually am okay. It's just when I hold it back, thinking I'm going to fix it, and then I don't, and they get surprised is when they get really irritated, and they might want to fire me. Yeah. So we have to go past our old practices of holding things too close to the vest and really be disclosive. You know, the whole thing about transparency that the Internet gives us is something that we need to think about as leaders as well. Now, okay, that, that brings me to another point. You, there doesn't seem to be that much activity from C-suiteers in social media. So is that because they're, they're too busy or they're slow adopters or do they think social media is somehow beneath them and for the, for the peasants? Or what is it? Why is there a... Or am I wrong? I think, it's, I, I, I think, it's, I think it's a number of reasons. I, one of the reasons is they simply don't understand it. You know, uh, you know still a C-suite, for the most part, is a little older. Yeah. And mostly male, not completely. And their way of relating to customers and other people was pick up a phone, send an email, send a letter. Well, that's not the way it works anymore. Yeah. I think so. I think it's part of it. I think part of it is we've been trained to uh, spin things. You know, if you have bad news, how do you spin it so it doesn't look bad and that kind of thing? And yeah. the internet absolutely has no space for that. We could unmask if we do that. So it's a whole set of different ways to be. That, that leaders not familiar with. Yeah. Good for business, they're just not particularly familiar with it. I think the other is they're busy and they, they have a story. Yep. I don't have time for this. Well, do you, do you not have time for your customers? Yeah. And really, that's the question I always ask myself. Well, of course, I have time for my customers, and then I need to make time for social media. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting that they will use social media extensively for research, for product development, for all of those things, and yet um, they... They don't understand it per se. That's kind of weird. I guess it's well, there. They really don't. And, and it's, I think, you know, they didn't grow up with it. You know, the younger people coming up have start, had Facebook a long time, and they've got yeah. Twitter, and they've got other things. And I, and I also think it moves so fast. You know, you've got to have a certain mindset to not get overwhelmed by it. 
particularly sure. a Twitter space. You need to use the right tools and filter the stuff out so you can see what's important to you and listen to the right things. And I, I, again, I don't think many C-suite leaders have done that. Now, my partner Jeffrey, he's a, he's a master at that. When he was at Kodak, he was one of the top C-suite leaders in social media in the world. Sure. And that's really borne out well for him because he was able to spot challenges in the business, react to them quickly, and then reorganize the company around that. So all C-suite leaders, you said it yourself, it's a great listening device. Yeah, Listen it is. Listen to your customers. It's right there in the network if you know how to look. Yeah. I guess it's also overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, if you get involved in social media, it's a bit like letting loose an avalanche, or it can be. And then I think that's probably daunting. You know, once, it, once I start getting copying this, then how the hell do I um, handle it, control it? Well, you're right. So they'll say to themselves, oh, gosh, uh, there's one more thing that I can't do, or one more thing that I'm behind in, or whatever it is. And it's like yeah. uh, they don't want them on a place, one more, one more place I could be a failure. I don't think they don't like that at all. So what are the most common leadership mistakes that people make, and how do we avoid them or overcome them? Let's see. Well, the most common leadership mistake I think people make is to um, not be uh, transparent about what's going on. Yeah. I mean, C-suite leaders still have the tendency to hold things back, talk privately among themselves, not share things with their organization. Yeah. I was just talking to a company the other day that went through a tremendous upheaval. They had the, the previous uh, management team of the company had uh, bought assets that weren't turning out. They had left almost no money in, in the till. And the leadership that came in was able to turn that around by being completely disclosive about everything every day. And yes. it builds trust. And, you know, people don't feel like they can trust leadership. Well, that's because leadership is not being straightforward with them. And if they are, that trust will soar and it will show up in the top and bottom line. Yeah. I guess it's easier, though, for somebody coming in to say, well, look, our predecessors really screwed up, but we're going to fix it for you, <laughs> than it is to stand up there and put your ass on the line and be counted. <laughs> <laughs> that you can actually run a successful business. Yeah. So what are the most essential qualities that a great leader should possess? Well, I think integrity. For me, integrity starts, you know, it's like, can you be counted on to do what you say when you say it? It's really simple. But, you know, I work with the biggest companies, and quite frankly, the CEOs of those companies and, and their teams don't have a lot of integrity. I just call it lack of accountability. Something right. goes wrong. Look at the big companies today. Take J.P. Morgan Chase. They had this, these huge losses, and the CEO's still there and just got a raise. Yeah. Well, yeah. What message does that send to the, to the organization? Yeah. Well, is that... You know, well, it's, it's, it's cover, cover your backside because the people that aren't at the top are going to be the ones that are going get, get to the, get the consequences, and the upper echelon of the company aren't going to have any accountability focused on them. Well, that's a terrible situation for companies. How much? How much is that? How much of that is um, comes down to charisma? Because charisma seems to fill a lot of holes. Well, well, you know, I was, I, I it's a good question, and I, I think charisma is it's overrated. Personally, I think you can do a lot with charisma. It's like really great salespeople have lots of charisma, 
But you can't sustain that charisma day after day with the same people. They get tired of it. Yeah. And what you need, if you, if you, if you are totally authentic with folks and you're really straightforward, they're going to want to gravitate towards you rather than a really high-charged charismatic person because a charismatic person is often somebody you're a little like, can I really trust what they say? Yeah. I, I like it. It's entertaining, but can I trust it? Whereas the authentic person, they may or may not be engaging, but you know you can rely on them. Yeah, sure. Well, Thomas, thank you very, very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Program on Voice America Business. I, uh, I think um, C-Suite Network is a fantastic idea, and, um, and it's been great to speak with you. Now, if you'd like to know more about the C-Suite Network, go to c-suitenetwork.com. Or you can just email me here at bob at bobpritchard.com and I'll scoot you directly over to Thomas. Thomas, make sure you pass on my best regards to Jeffrey. And, I'll uh, do that, Bob. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure. This is Bob Pritchard. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business and I'll be back in just a moment. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit. Just tell it the way it is. Business show. And we're coming to you this week from my hometown in Los Angeles after having been in Asia for a couple of weeks. So it's good to be home. Now, this is the segment of the show where we answer emails that come in from our listeners all over the world. And uh, it's incredible that despite all the cultures and all the differences between people in various regions, all of the emails are applicable to Everyone that's in business anywhere on the planet. You know, I must admit, I, I find it, found it difficult to sort of wrap my mind around it some years ago when I first went to places like Moscow and found that you sit down at a business meeting or sit down at a conference and everybody talks about exactly the same things that they talk about here in Los Angeles or in anywhere else. Um, even um, a couple of years ago when I did a number of presentations in Iran to businesses and to um, MBA students. I wasn't sure what to expect, but uh, in Iran, guess what? They do business exactly the same way we do. And uh, people that are in Iran have the same issues that we have. And the questions at question time in every one of the presentations that I did could have been questions that were asked anywhere else in the world. So my first email comes from Dylan McCourt from Cork in Ireland. 
Well, that's a great part of the world. I've um, been there many times. I've done some consulting there. I've had a client there that uh, was a good client. And uh, I've also given presentations there. It can be a cold old place, but it's um, it's very cool to visit. So if you put it on your bucket list. Now, Dylan writes, dear Bob, thanks for your interesting and informative show. I saw you speak in Cork a couple of years ago, and your presentation was impressive. I hope that you might come back here as we need more international expertise rather than just successful locals. Here, here, I'm all for that. So if you're a... Um, the Speakers Bureau or a company in Ireland that uh, would like me to come back, I'd be delighted to take your phone call. Um, I have a small local retail store and unfortunately a big shopping mall has just recently opened nearby and it's making it very difficult for local retailers to compete. What can we do as they have so much more to offer including movies and parking and a large range of stores? What do you suggest? Dylan, this is a very familiar story, but this is where several things become very important. Um, I worked for a suburb uh, a few years ago, was employed by the suburb to rejuvenate their suburban shopping because a big monster store had opened just down the road, a category killer, and we went all out to keep the locals. We um, put on entertainment in the street at the weekends. We had um, we put out little red carpets out the front of all the shops. Each of the shops gave away coffee and some gave away cookies and all sorts of things. And we made sure that we knew who everybody we knew everybody's name. We put them on a mailing list. We just made people feel like they were dealing with a family member and uh, it was an enormous success and that little suburb is still thriving you know I've got a gift store near where I live that um, it's got fantastic window displays that attracts people to come and look at the sort of interesting and very quirky things that they have in the shop now they've got a student creative merchandiser, a young person who isn't very expensive, but has a an incredible flair for the spectacular. And so if you have a spectacular display and you have a, unusual things, then people will come to you. They will notice you. You'll stand out. If you're selling the same stuff and giving the same service as the big boxes or the big shopping centres, you'll lose every time. You'll, they'll always beat you on price. But all the research shows that only 13% of people buy solely on price. 87% think other things are far more important. Now, you need to deliver those other things. And uh, you really need to understand your market segment and ensure that you've got the right product mix to appeal to them. You can give them add-ons that fit that market segment. And if, if your products are a little unusual and you're not selling exactly the same as your competitors, then you're in a position where you can increase your margins a little. 
I'm not saying rip anybody off, but increase the margins a little. And this is back where sensational customer service really differentiates your small store from the stores in the big centres who have lousy customer service and particularly from the big box stores who essentially don't have any. So if you can give good advice and you can be helpful and you're adding additional benefits, you'll win every time. Dylan, a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is my latest best-selling book. It'll be on its way to you tomorrow. My second email today comes from Colin Cowdery from Las Vegas, Nevada. Dear Bob, your show's very entertaining. I listen to it regularly. I'm a regular viewer of Shark Tank, and I heard your comments a year or so ago when you said it was simply entertainment and real-life investors were not at all like Mark Cuban, Kevin O'Leary, and the others. Could you please interview a real-life average investor so that your listeners can get a clearer idea of what investors are after? But, Bob, that isn't my question. The question is that here in Las Vegas, the community is changing very rapidly, and I need to reach out to a new multicultural environment that I find myself in. How do I go about this? Well, what I'm going to have to do is um, answer that next week because I'm not going to have a chance this week but um, it's one of those things investors are one of those things that every business has an issue with and on this show we've interviewed two really great investors that have told you exactly what you need to do Tim Draper who was the guy behind Skype and Hotmail and Baidu and whatever else and America's number one venture capitalist he's been on the show a couple of times and uh, Jay Turo from GrowThink, who was on the show about 18 months ago, I think. If you go to voiceamericabusiness.com or bobpritchard.com and go to my radio page, you can listen to these interviews in the, archi- in the archives. I'm out of town. I'm out of town, out of time. So send in your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus and become my friend on LinkedIn, or my contact on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at exactly the same time. So I'll finish the email from Colin next week, and I hope you have a fantastic and successful week, and I'll be in Alabama, Tennessee, and Louisiana, loving it. Bye. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.